Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, I don't quite know what adjective to use to describe this morning. Is it morning? I can't. If you've been drinking consistently since the Leicester match, then I'm not sure. You know, <laughs> our listeners may not know if it's morning or not. Um, yeah. But yes, here we are. Here we are. I've got a cold, um, which um, you might hear in my voice a little bit. So apologies if I'm a bit croaky and uh, turn away from the microphone to cough every now and again. I do have a Lemsip, though. So I'm, you know, living life on the edge here. Do you like Lemsip? Do I like... I actually quite like them, yeah. Do you? Yeah. I like you the hot them, lemony. <laughs> do you drink them when you're well? No. No, yeah. I don't really. Okay. I don't. I don't sort of indulge in a Lemsip martini or anything like sure. that at the weekends. I, I just t- wonder if that's a thing. I don't know. Do you get a little buzz <laughs> off a Lemsip? Maybe? I don't know. Like, it's a thousand milligrams of paracetamol in one of the Lemsip cold and flu things. So... Um, let's see, maybe at half time I'll go downstairs, I'll take out one of the sachets, I'll chop it out on the desk here and I'll snort it and see where that takes us. How Great. about that? Yeah, that'd be nice. Or that would be nice. Cocktail. I think, um, well, I hope you feel better soon. Thank uh, you. It feels, it feels relevant, doesn't it, that you're, it feels pertinent that you're not well. Uh, mm. It kind of sits... Uh, it sits with what's going on at the club at the moment. It does a bit, it does a bit. Another disappointing weekend and you know mm. what I think I, I think what's really fantastic about this is that you know the the result against Leicester maybe it wasn't unexpected it was still a bad result for Arsenal um, and on its own that would have been enough to provoke a, a measure of introspection and discussion and debate but god damn it this football club doesn't do things by halves does it we somehow contrived having lost to Leicester, having uh, not won in our last, what, four, five Premier League games? Five. Five. We've made it worse with some of the stuff that's been uh, belched out into the the atmosphere or whatever you might want to call it. Like... We don't we don't do it by halves. When we fuck things up, we're absolutely determined to fuck them up as well as we can possibly do that. If only we could make that same kind of application uh, in terms of what happens on the pitch and with the manager and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the, the level of commitment to clusterfuck is admirable. You have to say. Mm. Um, I mean, normally on this podcast we go, well, we'll start with the game. But I I don't know if that would be the right thing to do this week because the game feels almost like a bit of a a side note, really, in the context of what's happened since. It does a bit. I do suppose we should 
look at the game though briefly because you know first and foremost this is a football podcast and there was sure. football the football wasn't particularly good so let's use the game as a as a way of laying out the context of of what was to come and what we're going to discuss I guess in some detail Unai Emery went with a back three he yeah. he he deployed a back three for the first time in the Premier League this season. Part of me goes, okay, I can sort of see why you're maybe a bit desperate now and you're trying something new. And, you know, another part of me was looking at it going, why the fuck did you play Kieran Tierney in midweek and not give him the Premier League game rather than Kolasinac? It just, mm. you know, it is a baffling thing. But that's, I guess... A side issue, really, a bit of an irrelevance. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I thought that was really odd, I have to say. I mean, it almost felt like he was going back to what he mm. has known to work a bit at Arsenal, which is, you know, Kolasinac on the overlap, a back three. They were kind of hallmarks of his team last season. Um, but equally, this year, we've been looking for that sort of identity. And yeah. the only thing that's been any kind of consistent element in that really has been a back four. So... Yeah. To throw that out at this point does sort of suggest a guy who is kind of throwing stuff at the wall at this point. It, despite all that, I thought it was probably the right decision in that, you know, it got enough people in sort of the right areas of the pitch. They actually looked a bit more balanced than a lot of our teams have done recently. I yeah. Think. Like, I think midway through the second half on the live blog, I said, you know, dare I say it, we we look at, we look relatively comfortable here. Um and then I think probably two minutes later, Jamie Vardy scored a goal. I, I, I haven't looked at that. The curse of the live blog strikes again. But I did think it, it did look um, a little bit better. I know we're coming from a low bar, so I'm not going to yeah. say, you know, certainly uh, that this was the, the right way to go completely. And, and for me, you know, the back three, when deployed by Unai Emery, it really just brings me back to last season and ultimately what we did last season ended in failure with a back mm. three. You know, a European final ended in failure with a back three. Our top four chase ended in failure uh, with a back three. Um, but I thought there were some moments and I, I guess this is me just looking for any glint in the darkness. I thought there were some moments where we played some nice football I think in the first half more than the second, there was one, I can't remember when that Bellerin chance came about. There was a really nice move down. I think it was first half, really nice move down the left-hand side and we worked the ball into the middle and Lacazette tried to cushion a pass and there was yeah. Bellerin arriving in the box. I thought that was some lovely football. There was another one as well. Um, another I one or two moves. an age ago yeah. now, but I, th I think if Lacazette had been a bit sharper, we we might have got something in mm. that first half. There were a couple of chances that fell to him sort of on the left-hand side of the box and that touch to Bellerin was a bit heavy. I yeah. think, you know, had, had he... He doesn't look quite right to me at the moment. Uh, he, he's certainly not at his best. And if he was, yeah, we might have had something there. I thought the right-hand side actually benefited a bit from the reshape. You know, you've got Bellerin as a wing-back and Callum Chambers as a right-sided centre-half. You know, those are quite natural roles for those guys, rather than Chambers who's been mm. playing as a fullback and running some problems there. Uh, I, I thought that was a bit better. I also thought we were a bit... I mean, look, this is all in context. This is all with a low bar. But I thought we were slightly more organised without the ball. It was... It was it was defensive, don't get me wrong. It was sort of two banks of five at times. But yeah. um, 
it, you know, it had some shape to it, which having watched Unai Emery's Arsenal a lot this season, you haven't always been able to say with a great deal of confidence. Yeah, that's true. But again, I was watching the game and I was I was sort of disheartened looking mm. at Arsenal as a team who are going to Leicester. And, you know, we, we know Leicester are a decent side. Oh, Laurie is back. Hello, Laurie. In our times of darkness, he's come <laughs> back hashtag to... Hashtag Laurie in. Hashtag Laurie in, yeah. Uh, Laurie Cunningham. Laurie is caretaker until the end of the season. <laughs> but, you know, there, there's something depressing, isn't there, about watching Arsenal, even in the context of where we are and how poor things are, going away from home and sitting there like we've seen so many teams do when they come to the Emirates. You know, we mm. look at a team in the lower half of the table and you can think of the, the how many games during the Arsene Wenger era where we'd say, well, you know, they only came to, to sort of sit there and soak up pressure. And yeah, it was a little bit more organized, but it's not that sophisticated, is it? It's just get behind the ball when they have it whoever you are, all of you, including Aubameyang, including Lacazette, just get behind the ball. Um, yeah, well, I, I think, it, I mean, for me, it's just sophistication in as far as it exists is part of its problem because, you know, those strikers, Lacazette and Aubameyang, were clearly detailed to, to split and track back and defend wide areas, which meant... Mm vacating sort of the whole centre forward area and and I just you know you look at 100 million pound worth or more of striking talent and you think is that <laughs> the best use of them yeah uh, and Ozil ideally, no no of course and Ozil I think uh, who had a a decent game I thought Ozil had a really mm. decent game um, on a night when you know performance wasn't brilliant overall I thought he tried to you'd see him in that centre forward position instigating the press as much as there was one and filling in that that area. But yeah, you know, two fifty million pound strikers, more than fifty million pounds in the case of Aubameyang, obviously. Um yeah, it's not yeah. the right way it's not the right way to use them. No, and, and you know, I appreciate there's some context here in terms of how well Leicester playing and how badly we're playing, but mm. you know, we are where we are because of what we've been doing and yeah, I agree about Urzel, you know, I think I've been one of his critics, but I think this was one of his uh, better performances away from home in, you know, I guess what qualifies yeah. as a big game at this point. I thought he was pretty good. Mm. So, look, we didn't score any goals and it was midway through the second half and Leicester had had some chances. I think they 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 were certainly um, the team that created more in terms of not clear-cut chances, but they put pressure on us and there were some good balls into the box and, and everything mm. else. Inevitably, our defensive frailty came uh, to manifest itself with the the first Jamie Vardy goal. I mean, nice bit of play from from Leicester, but uh, yeah, his goal just felt inevitable. Um, and what 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 did you make of what Unai Emery said in the press conference after Vardy scored? He said, "When they scored the first goal, that's when we lost the opportunity to do something in that match." Like, we're only a goal behind. And actually, you're the coach of a team who can have a two-goal lead and still not win a game, or can have a two-goal lead twice in a game and still not win it. You know, surely he, as more than anyone knows, that leads are over overturnable. Is that... That's not a word. Um, yeah, it's close enough. Yeah, but you know what we I know mean. We know what you mean. Yeah. We know what you mean. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think... I mean, his demeanour post-match was kind of strangely confident for reasons you know we later discovered mm. um as for the first goal i mean you know this was a game that was i think going to hinge on the first goal and it shouldn't have done you know you should be able to arrest 
things and change things around, but I certainly didn't have a great deal of confidence. I mean, if we think Arsenal are bad when they're in front, wait till you see them when they're behind. Mm. And they, uh, I suppose the most bizarre aspect of it for me was that between Leicester's first and second goals, there was no change. You know, you've got Nicola Pepe sat there on the bench. I think there's seven minutes that goes, you know, between those two goals and he's not introduced in that time. And, and yeah. that struck me as very, very odd. Yeah, look, I think the fact that he was on the bench is odd. Um, and I do wonder if, you know, when you see Pepe being used the way that he is and you know that Emery has had issues with certain players, uh, you know, it makes you wonder if there's been something going on there. You know, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for Emery to have uh, an issue with a player. Mm. Pure speculation on my behalf, of course, but... You know, it, it did seem odd to me and, and certainly throwing him on whatever it was, 77, 78 minutes, you know, throwing on your record signing. Uh, we had a, a, a question, I can't remember, um, maybe it's by email here. I thought it was just an interesting point, if I can find it. Uh, Mike Lynch, who says, I'm glad Emery is picking Ozil in his starting 11, but I can't figure out why he switched to a back three to do so. It does seem a bit strange, doesn't it, that you're bringing Ozil back, but playing a system which really doesn't suit the kind of player that Ozil is. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if or, it's the Ozil, sorry, can Ozil I, thing. Go sorry, on. yeah, just uh, another thing is that, you know, isn't it, isn't it like strange or weird or funny or um, uh, depressing might be another way of putting it that, you know, our our best performance, and I use that in, in inverted commas because, you know, it was marginally improved but still not what you would call good has come in a in a formation which basically has no room for a 72 million pound winger. Like mm. isn't isn't didn't he want a winger? Didn't he want Zaha? He got Pepe. Like wasn't his whole thing about I wanted a winger because I want to play this sort of football. When he gets a winger, he doesn't use him and doesn't play that kind of football. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it is about Ozil and Pepe in the team together I think we can already see that he doesn't even really want them on the pitch at the same time mm. if he can possibly avoid it uh, as we saw in the Wolves game I think but uh, he clearly doesn't feel able to accommodate both um, yeah it's a it's a big problem because one is the highest paid player at the club and one is the most expensive transfer in the history of the club yeah. so you know, uh, something's got to give there. I mean, uh, perhaps they thought they would be able to get shot of Ozil, clearly not. And now Ozil's back in favour, it looks tricky for Pepe. Mm. So look, Leicester score, then they score again, and he mm. throws on Pepe, he throws on Joe Willock. Um, you know, I don't really know that he expected either of them to do anything. I think he just had to do something to look like he was being in any way proactive. But, you know, you get to the end of the game and Arsenal haven't had a shot since the 53rd minute. That was when Hector Bellerin took the ball forward and, and cracked one not far over the bar. A decent effort from him. But 53rd minute was the last time in that game that Arsenal had a shot. And, and you know, you can think about certain performances this season where we have been behind and we have come from behind because, you know, we've taken the game to the opposition. You think Aston Villa at home, the North London Derby, of course, who were behind. Um, but to to be in that position... And to not even have a shot on goal from the time Leicester scored or scored their second or from the 53rd minute of a game is is really, really bad. Um, and I know we're sort of going around in circles here talking about 
the performance and the stats and the metrics of, of Unai Emery's teams and the way that they're set up. But it's just another, as we said last week, another statistical nail in Unai Emery's coffin, which, of course, he appears to be standing outside of laughing, going, I'm not getting in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you follow Orbino on Twitter, his timeline is kind of <laughs> the uh, Unai Emery managerial obituary at the moment. I mean, it's just stat after stat after stat. Chance which is- to be a fine thing. But, yeah, which yeah. is which is damning, really damning. And uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think it was the Sheffield United game as well where we didn't really create anything in the final 20 minutes, final half an hour. You know, and I think I said at the time, when you're trailing in a game, you always think, well, we'll get one chance. And this Arsenal team doesn't often. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, at the other end, I mean, it could have been worse. And Diddy should have scored, hit the bar. Uh, in the first half, I can think of Jamie Vardy almost getting on the end of a, a very good cross. So... You know, it, it might have been more uh, dramatic, the scoreline. And when yeah. you look at it, it reminds me a bit of the Wolves game because people come out of the Wolves game and we sort of see a couple of signs of improvement and maybe it's the same with Leicester. But realistically, I think there was a point in the first half where we were leading Leicester by about five attempts to two on goal. Right. Uh, and I and I sort of, <laughs> I think I tweeted that and I was like, oh, that's unusual. And by half time. I think they'd had seven <laughs> shots and we'd had no more. And it was kind of like that for the remainder of the game. And yeah. Against Wolves and Leicester, there were basically 15-minute periods in the first half where we looked competent and like we might score. And when we didn't in those, or didn't score frequently enough in those games, we just sort of ran out of juice. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you know, I did not go to Leicester expecting Arsenal to get anything, I have to say. I thought maybe a draw would suit everybody kind of thing because they're so far ahead of us already. But yeah, we uh, we didn't get that. We lost. And I'm sure everyone at the end of the game was thinking, well, that might be curtains for an Emery. No, he doesn't have any curtains. There, there appear to be no curtains whatsoever mm. for him. Um, I, You know, I don't know that the game merits any more analysis than that because what happened after the game and what's happened since and maybe a bit of what happened before the game, I think, is is worth delving into. So there was this Sky Sports interview with Emery in which he talked about needing patience and talking about, yeah. uh, you know, young players were trying to develop young players and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I was looking at it um a bit befuddled because he was talking about how last season was a good season and and obviously it wasn't a good season mm. because of the way that it ended. You know, that's where you, you know, judge me in May or look at the table. The table doesn't lie. The table tells us that Arsenal did not have a good season last season based on where we were towards the end of it and obviously the, the, the Europa League final. Um, and, and then he was talking about these circumstances, circumstances which... Um, you know, have made it uh, difficult for the players to find emotional stability because this is the thing that we're missing, James. Emotional stability is what we're missing. That's that's the only thing that's preventing this Arsenal side from, from winning games. We don't have mm-hmm. emotional stability because of these circumstances. And what he's talking about are... Uh, and I saw James Ollie write a piece for the Evening Standard about this where it said there is considerable sympathy within Arsenal for some of the situations that, that Emery has had to deal with this season, such as the Lauren Koscielny one, the attack on Ozil and Kolasinac, and the Granit Xhaka situation. So one, Koscielny, that was August. Actually, it was July. It was July. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that was dealt with 
by the start of August. Then we have the Ozil Kalasinac situation. Okay, not pleasant for either of those two guys, but Kalasinac was back in the squad for the second game of the season. Um, yeah. So it wasn't as if we were robbed of their services for months and months at a time. And the omission of Ozil, as we know, was an Emery slash club strategy, which was in place until such time as we needed to do something different with our team. And now he's back. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's a load of bollocks. The Xhaka thing, that only happened a couple of weeks ago. So this idea that there are excuses because, you know, these things that happened off the pitch are are somehow too much for our players, our poor little meek players to get their brains and hearts around is absolutely, absolutely absurd. Um, and if if the Arsenal board are are sort of buying that bullshit, um, and they're we've got a lot to talk about the board, then you know. I'm I'm even more worried or irritated than I am right now. So your thoughts on that interview and his his sort of proclamations about how we need to be patient. To me, and I I sent this to you on text, I think, after reading it and reading his post-match comments as well, where he sort of regurgitated the same stuff. It sounded to me like a guy who'd been told, don't worry about it. We're behind you. We back you. Don't feel the pressure because we've got your back. Yeah, I I agree. It does sound like that. Uh, The other thing to say about that Sky Sports interview is that it was conducted in Spanish, so there's no real room for misinterpretation there. You know, that's Unai in his principal language telling us what he really thinks. So, Mm. you know... I, uh, I I don't have a great deal of sympathy with those circumstances and I don't have a great deal of sympathy at all with the young players idea. No. You know, I was looking at Leicester's team. Uh, I think their left-back is Chilwell, 22, Sointu, 22-23, and Didi is 22, um, Harvey Barnes, 22. Uh, there are more. Uh, Gray came off the bench. They have got tons of young players. And look at the football that they're playing. Yeah. Um, I don't think it is an excuse that stands up, especially when, I mean, most of them aren't in the team. Look at that team that we played against Leicester. Like, yeah. who, who are the young players there? Ganduzi, okay, but he's got experience at this point. You know, he played predominantly all of last season. Beyond that, I don't really know who you're looking at. Um, it sounded like excuses, really. Yeah. And, I mean, that's what it is. That's it what it is. Absolutely it's, is, it's, yeah. They're excuses. They are excuses. They're not reasons for why um, we can't defend, we don't create, our midfield is still a mess, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, there was, there was a bit to unpack from that. But then, you know, having lost to Leicester and having statistically broken some more records um, that have stood for many years, you know, one shot mm-hmm. on target is our worst in the Premier League this season. It's our worst start to a season since 1982-83. We've won two of our last 10 Premier League games. You know, across the two seasons, we have, what, six wins from 19 Premier League games. You know, fans aren't stupid. And fans can see what's happening. And you can look with your eyes and see a team that's not performing, that's not anywhere near the sum of its parts. The data tells you that. The statistics tell you that. The underlying metrics tell you that. You know, we have a negative goal difference. Um, mm. and, and I'm thinking, okay, there's got to be some acknowledgement from on high that this is not working, that this is, this is a problem for us. Because 
the stated aim of this season is to get back into the top four and get back to Champions League football. We all know that. Um, at the rate we're going and the points we're, we're gathering under Emery, we're not going to get anywhere near the top four. So no. even if they weren't going to sack him, which I think they should, and they should have done it before now, but even if they weren't, some acknowledgement that it's not working or not working as well as they might like would have been a sensible option for the club. Instead, via David Ornstein in uh, in The Athletic, mm-hmm. we got this story about how they, they back him 100%. And it was, I swear to God, I... I I read it because I just posted my blog yesterday um, about the board and how you know, really at this point it's not about Emery because Emery is what Emery is and he does what he does. And as long as he's allowed to do it, he will do it. Yeah. And and there's, you know, I don't know. I'm not here to sort of make a case against him, but we've talked about him. We've talked about the performances and results, and they're the sort of results and performances that get managers sacked at other football clubs. Mm. No question. So this is on the board now, and it's up to them. It's their responsibility. They're the ones that have to to find a solution to this. And then I read the David Ornstein piece, and I swear my heart sank. You know, Mm. it's an old cliche, but genuinely I read it and was like, oh, no. And reading the piece, it didn't make didn't make me feel any better. Well, no, I don't think it would because I think even if uh, basically I think there is a way that the club could have communicated the idea that they were going to give Emery slightly more time mm. that I think would have bought them a little bit more uh, earned them a bit more credit, say than what we got. Mm. Uh, I, I think that. That siren just scared the shit out of me. <laughs> I'm very on edge. <laughs> They're coming for Unai. I, um, yeah, I, I think that the way that... Uh, and, and it's not just with David Ornstein and The Athletic. I think if you look at pretty much any of the newspapers today, uh, the same message from the club is present. Mm-hmm. And it is one of... Well, it's kind of, unfortunately, tonally somewhat reminiscent of the the Chips Keswick thing, isn't it? The, you know, thank you for your interest in our affairs kind of dismissiveness mm. of of fan opinion. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a bit insulting, really. It's insulting to the intelligence of the average fan, I think, to kind of, you know, put your head in the sand and pretend this isn't going on. And I think it is insultingly dismissive of of those concerns. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, the first thing was their view of the Leicester game Um, and what David said in, or, you know, the internal view is that prior to the goal, the Gunners have been dominating play, creating doubts in their opponents' minds and building momentum. Vardy's effort came as a body blow to a team already struggling uh, struggling for confidence. And from that moment on, they posed little threat, soon conceding a second goal uh, to James Madison. There's acknowledgement at Arsenal that Leicester are an extremely strong side, especially at home. And the top brass think Emery's team showed clear signs of improved performance. It encouraged their view that Arsenal are on the right path. What the fuck is that? (laughs) Well, uh, I'll tell you what's absurd about that is that 
when it gets to this point with a manager, it feels like every game, like even if Arsenal had won against Leicester, there would still be a very strong case to change the manager. You can't make a decision based on one match. Mm. Uh, And I think the fact that also we lost, and I don't think we were ever controlling the game, really. We were in the game, but I wouldn't go further than that. It's kind of absurd to to say, well, therefore we see these green shoots and therefore we believe this is going to change. I mean, I genuinely don't know what they think is going to happen. Like, I wish I could uh, find out what their... If there is any positive thing that they see that makes them go, yes, let's persist with this. Yeah. I, I really don't know. And believe me, as you know, Andrew, I'm looking for it. Like, I'm looking for it everywhere. I'd love to see it, but Look, I, I would don't. too. We all would. I mean, that's the thing. We were, you know, it's sort of lost in the mists of time that people were, even if they had some concerns about Emery, you know, when the appointment was made. And uh, also, fuck you, Ivan Gazidis, for doing it in the first place. Um, you know, there, <laughs> there were, um, I think people were just sort of going, okay, let's see. Let's see what happens here. We want to see the encouraging signs. So our 22-game unbeaten run was really encouraging, you know, if you don't look at the stats. But let's not look at the stats because it's all new and, you know, let's just concentrate on results, et cetera, et cetera. And, like, you know, people say, oh, you're always moaning about this, that, and the other. I don't want to be moaning. I want to see the club do well, and I want to see the... uh, the decisions that the club makes come to fruition, right? Mm. And I have to say, I, I sort of have that general outlook. And I have to say today, I feel a bit of a fucking idiot. I feel like a mm. bit of a fucking idiot for for believing or hoping that when we brought in Raul and when Ivan left and when Edu came in as technical director... I feel a bit stupid for kind of believing in them to the extent that I did, that I thought they were, you know, the kind of people who would make big decisions when those big decisions needed to be made, you know? Mm. And what we've got over the weekend is evidence that they're probably not, you know? And I, I, I've got to wonder about the motivation of that statement or that that briefing to David Ornstein, whoever it was at the club who who gave him that information and and that that um, what's the word I'm looking for here? That point of view, as if it's the club's point of view, has badly party misjudged. Line, yeah. yeah, that party line. It's it's been very very badly misjudged. Mm. Very badly. I mean- Let's let's interrogate it because okay. I think I share your um, <laughs> what's the word disappointment really mm. because you know I I've invested a lot in the idea that these guys at the top are sort of different to what we've become used to or what we've had before. Do we think that because we've been fed that essentially, it is inherently true? Do you know what I mean? Like, is yeah. there any chance that that's just a piece of media communication that doesn't reflect the conversations that Raul and Eddie might have in their office. Yeah, I think it is possible. Um, I, I think there is a a, um, a tendency, I guess, on on um, any organisation's behalf to try and accentuate the positives or to put out a positive message. Right. Yeah. So yeah. togetherness, unity. We believe in the manager, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In some ways 
um, might be seen as the right way to go because you're trying to dampen the flames. Instead, what this did was was absolutely um, pour oil on those flames. So, yeah, look, I think it is possible that the person who um, provided that information was doing so in the belief that, you know, sending out a positive message is the right way to communicate, but it may not necessarily be reflective of what Edu is thinking, what Raoul is thinking. And I hope that's the case because... If they are thinking what um, what that statement suggests, then you know we're 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 really in big trouble. Um, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, we don't know, and we can't know, unfortunately. <laughs> we have to hope that that is the case. I mean, what's certainly not true is that they're thinking, well, let's make a change right now. That's definitely yeah the case. Whatever, whatever the truth of you know that statement. Yeah, I did speak to somebody over the weekend who basically confirmed that part of the yeah of the story that no they are not thinking of making a change so you know it's not as if it's completely and utterly wrong but no no yeah. i mean you know if they if they were that concerned maybe they would have done something i mean the other thing to ask i suppose is is there a justifiable reason that they might not want to that they may think that there's some point in waiting you know, this is this is the the case that I've seen put by a few people that, you know, maybe there is a target, but he's not available now, that kind of thing. I have to say, it's not an argument I massively see because yeah. in the meantime, you lose a lot of points. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. It depends what their, what their target is for this season. Like, are they yeah. willing to write off this season by keeping Emery in order to get the right man next season, even if it means another season in the Europa League? If you know, if that's uh, I, I think that's you know being wildly optimistic. You know, um, I, I, I think I, if you look at the way the club spent money this summer, it smacked to me of a club who knew they had to get back yeah, into the Champions League 100%, as soon as possible. Hundred percent. I mean, we 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 stretched ourselves this summer in the mm-hmm. transfer market, and that you know that was one of the reasons we were encouraged because it displayed a measure of ambition. And a willingness to take a bit of a risk, which perhaps hasn't been there before. But yeah, you're right. I mean, spending the money that we did this summer was designed to get us back into the Champions League this season. So, yeah, I... I, And uh, you ran some numbers on your blog this morning about points accumulation. Uh, I think if, you know, if we carry on... Uh, at this kind of rate, don't we need to win something to get 71 points, which was the mark for top four last term? You have to get something like 18 wins, is it, from 24? Yeah, 18 wins would give us 54 points. We need 53 points to get to 71 points, which is what the top four, um, that was the marker for last season. So, you know, whatever combination of wins and draws you need to get there, but, you know, baseline is 18 wins. And how do you expect a manager with six wins in 19, two wins in 10? How is he going to improve? You know, he might improve us. We might actually, you know, because things have been so bad, improve a bit over the Mm. next little while. But it won't be enough. There's no question it won't be enough. No, I I think uh, it looks very difficult at this stage to Mm. get the top four. Because actually, I mean, the, the kind of mad thing is we are in the, this is the easy bit. We're in the run of winnable fixtures at the moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we get into Christmas, Man U, Chelsea, Man City, trips to Everton, trips to Bournemouth, trip to Crystal Palace, you know, I mean, the, the fixtures get tougher. Yeah. Certainly. Um, I mean, 
weirdly enough, Unai Emery somehow seems to come out better sometimes in those games. But this is where we should be accumulating points and mm. we're not doing it. I think the whole thing is a real fuck-up from the club, basically. The way that they have voiced their decision to keep Emery in is hugely problematic and yeah. it sort of attributes... It feels like it attributes a certain degree of blame on the supporters, you know, yeah. there are quotes. Let me let me read uh, it out then. Um, this is this was what was part of uh, David's piece. He said they are adamant. Their project is sound, well planned, and will bring success, provided the external atmosphere allows it to do so. They hope the international break comes at a good time for the Arsenal squad, allowing them a welcome change of scenery, but accept that the absence of domestic matches will increase the noise around Emery and they're determined not to let it influence their thoughts or actions. So, first and foremost, what do you think of this idea that um, the the success of this well-planned, sound project is apparently entirely dependent on the external atmosphere allowing that project to to thrive. I mean, again, sorry, what the fuck does that mean? I mean, should we all turn up in like fucking unicorn jumpers and sing songs and lullabies to make sure everybody feels nice? What the shit like? I mean, it's a strange one. Sound versus noise. I think... Um I think this speaks to a significant breakdown in the relationship between the club and its supporters. And I think we all sort of know that has been there and it's kind of been bubbling under the surface. But my sort of interpretation of this, and it, it's, it's sort of unpleasant really, but it's really unpleasant. My interpretation is that due to what's gone on with... Arsene Wenger and certain other things. And unfortunately, the Granite Xhaka thing, I think, has played into this incorrectly. Um, I think there are people at the club who have seen the actions of a few sort of fringe fanatics, you know, like extreme elements of the Arsenal support and kind of, um, kind of tarred everybody with that brush and sort of delegitimized the Arsenal fan base. Mm. That, that's honestly what I think. I think that, you know, whatever it is, whether it's a guy screaming into a camera or a guy sending a, a, a comment on Instagram, those fringe elements which catch headlines, which catch light, have characterised a much broader, more mm. rational, reasonable support. And I think there are people in place at Arsenal who, there are lots of people who on that board who predate Raul, who predate mm. certainly Edu uh, and people in communications and other areas of the club who look at Arsenal fans and think that's who they are. Mm. And when the Granite Shaka thing happened, I think that what that really was was a sort of uh, a, a symptom of people's dissatisfaction and frustration with the direction of the team. But instead, it was interpreted as confirmation of an irrational hysterical fan base. And now, at a point where, you know, fans have a rational and justifiable opinion that the direction of the team under Unai Emery is not good, the club interpret that and characterise it as a bit reactionary and mad. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That is what I think has happened here. And it, 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 unfortunately, it leaves the club and the, and the fans slightly at odds with each other because there is essentially no mutual trust. Mm. Uh, and I think that's why we are where we are. And I, and I think the club is wrong in that. Don't get me wrong. I think, I think the club are wrong because they yeah. are letting the actions of a few sort of characterise the many. Um, and I think, you know, we don't trust the club because, you know, I think we're justified in that position because, you know, it does feel a bit like a project that's not sufficiently ambitious or one that is, you know, for business rather than sporting gain um and it's just a, a complete breakdown in that relationship sadly and and you see that in what you hear out of the club at this point and there is a disdain yeah almost that's a really good word that's a really good word um you know the tone of that briefing really is insulting towards fans it really is mm. it's so badly misjudged and to suggest that the external atmosphere is having an impact on what this team is doing on the pitch. Um, look, in an ideal world, of course, everybody's behind the team and everybody is, um, you know, pulling in the same direction. There's a very distinct difference between fans or supporters, whatever you want to call us, and cheerleaders, right? Mm -hmm. We're not cheerleaders. We all want our team to do well, but at the same time, when things are wrong... We shouldn't just go, okay, the club knows best. The club is omnipotent. It's a some kind of God. And we should not in any way question what the club is doing because who are we to do that? And that's that's the way they view us. It's, it's sort of like we're the plebs and they're the government and we're kicking up and they're like, look at you, little people. Mm. It, it, it really has annoyed me that, I have to say, because... Um, you know, I think, I think, Arsenal fans, and I, I saw it on Twitter as well over the weekend. People go, "Yeah, well, the fans are shit," and fuck off with that. The fans are not shit. There are some shit fans, same as there are everywhere else, but the Arsenal fans are not shit. The Arsenal fans were willing to overlook the end of last season and willing to get behind the club and think about the summer, how enthused and how encouraged everybody was about what happened in the transfer market with Pepe, with doing, you know, Tierney, with Don Raul, and there was a feel-good factor and everybody was on board with that. People were taking selfies with Raul and Edu and all that kind of stuff. So the fans aren't shit. The fans were willing and hopeful that what we did this summer would make the team better. And now that it's clear that it hasn't, and, and one of the main um, figureheads in that, Emery, is being backed so um, strongly by the club as if we're somehow fucking idiots to think that what's going on on the pitch um, is, is bad or wrong or that we, um, because we want something to change, are somehow morons. Like, we don't see the bigger picture here. We don't see what's going on in their, their well-planned, sound project. You know, we're not, we're not clever enough to, to understand everything that's going on, and we should sh sit down and shut the fuck up. That's the way that that statement and that briefing came across, and it's 
a dangerous fucking game to play to treat fans like that because fans are not stupid. We see, we invest our time, we invest our money, we invest our goodwill, our emotions into this football club. And to be spoken down to in that way, even if it was via a back channel briefing or whatever it is, they can go fuck themselves with that, to be perfectly honest. They can really go fuck themselves. And, you know, it's unfortunate because... You know, now, rather than deflecting some of the the anger away from the board, which I think in, in some way it was it was a cack-handed way of, of trying to do that by by mm. by backing Emery, they're sort of going, Well look, this is Emery. If if it fails, it's Emery. No. If it fails, it's on you now, because we can all see that what, what Emery is producing is not good enough. It's turned yeah. the spotlight well and truly on them, and it's going to destroy relationships. I mean, they've put this out there. They've they've put this out there. They're going to have to deal with it. They are, and I think I can already kind of feel sentiment shifting almost away from memory. I think that if you look at the fallout of the Leicester game, if you look at our previous matches, there was a lot of anger directed uh, around the coach and at the coach, and I feel like... There's less of that this week. And I and I, mm. I really do think that people sort of, to a certain extent, accept that he is what he is at this point. Yeah. And I don't think anyone thinks he's, a, you know, nobody thinks he's a bad man, really. Nobody thinks he's not trying to do the job, you know. So I think yeah. it's kind of, people are, are relatively understanding of that. They, you know, they can think that and think he shouldn't be there. It's perfectly possible. I think everything you said is true. And as a fan, I absolutely identify with it and I feel like I said insulted and, and a bit dismissed by all that the only thing I would offer sort of as a counterpoint is I suppose I do think I do think that Raul Sanyehi for example knows better than me how to run a football club I, I do think that like I think I I still have a certain degree of trust in people who actually do this job rather than me who sits there and talks about it. That's yeah, that's fair because he's got the experience and he's you know been at Barcelona and he's been at Arsenal for for this mm. length of time. But if I was if I was sitting there in a room mm. that was on fire with a fireman and the fireman did nothing, I would have doubts over his ability as a fireman. I agree. And the only caveat I would offer to that is just that we had that fire in the summer. We had the We Care Do You thing. We were all worried about the club's transfer business. What direction were we headed? And in fairness to that team, they did pull it out the bag. Okay. So yep. Yep. I, I'm not I'm not ready quite yet to be like they're complete clowns and they don't know everything. Okay, I think no they definitely got this wrong tonally. Mm. And I happen to disagree with them on what they're doing about the head coach situation. But on sort of referring back to what I said about a complete lack of trust between fans and supporters, for my part as a fan, I still have to have some trust in these guys. I, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, no. I, I do see what you mean. And I take your point. And I think, um, I think that the response to this is what will be crucial. Absolutely yeah. crucial because I don't think relationships have broken down completely. 
No. I do think it's right for fans to be unhappy about what's come out over this weekend. And, and like you say, the tone of it was appalling. Um, I do go back to the idea that maybe the way that that was expressed is not the way perhaps that certain people at the club would like it to have been expressed. And mm-hmm. that it doesn't necessarily mean that they are are um, unwilling to pay attention to what's going on around them. So mm. I think how the club respond to this is going to be absolutely vital. There has to be some kind of communication from Edu or Raoul this week to address the stuff that's been out there over this weekend. Like, explain why you think Emery is still the right man. Mm. Come out and talk about it. Make a convincing case, if you can, for keeping him. Yeah, or even show awareness Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just some acknowledgement that, okay, we know this is not good, but we think blah, blah, blah. I'm probably not going to agree with it, but... Yeah, it's yeah. I, I I agree with you, and and something I said I think about a week ago, I was like, it would really help Unai if he sort of <laughs> could bring himself to say, look, I know these performances aren't great. Now it doesn't feel like he's going to do that because I'm not sure it's necessarily what he believes. But I think for someone else in the club to step forward and say, we know this is not up to scratch. We, you know, I don't know why there's so much fear to say that. I think it would. I think it would do them more good than bad. Honestly, I do. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's a really strong idea and a strong call on the club to to step into this space that, that is just going to fester at the moment for two weeks, for this whole international break. Yeah. The way they have addressed the managerial situation and the concerns of the fans is going to cause problems and, you know... Dissension, essentially. I mean, it, yeah, it's a, it was a, and I, I, I don't know, but my gut says that Raoul, Edu, Vinay are probably looking at the fallout of this and going, ah, oh, fuck. Yeah. Surely. They, Surely. They have to be. They have to be. Because, like, I don't understand they, what it is that they're seeing from, from Emery. Like, if you, no, me neither. If you look at it from a purely footballing point of view, they they cannot be looking at this and thinking it's good enough. Like no way, no way, because it's not. Like we can see it. We can. We've all like look at the league table. Look at our results. Look at our goals. Look at our. Look at it all. We have fucking stat DNA in there that can provide this club with stats out the wazoo about what we're doing, how we're performing, and everything else. Um. So they can't be unaware or blind to the failings on a footballing level, right? I think yeah. we, we, we credit them with enough knowledge and intelligence for that. Yes, yeah. so that- we think Edu understands football. Yeah. yeah. I think so. Yeah. And I think, you know, someone like Sanyehi, who was director of football at Barcelona for a number of years, understands what is acceptable or not acceptable on a performance level for, for a big club, right? Okay. So it's got to be something else. There's got to be something else that's preventing them from making the decision that 
I think most people would like them to make, which is to change the manager. So I had a question here, if I can just find it here. It's from Simon, who's at SH Sharrington. And he says, is the decision to ignore the noise, in inverted commas, as much a function of, uh, of a lack of a credible alternative as it is a steadfast belief in the job that the manager is doing, which is to say, is part of the reason they're backing Emery so strongly um, due to the fact that they don't have an option at this point, who could, who they think can do a better job? Uh, so I, I think, to be honest, it would be a bit concerning if they if they were like, well, but there's no one we can think of between us with our supposed football experience and football knowledge. I would be more reassured if it was, oh, we do know exactly who, but we just can't get them right now. I would be much more reassured by that if they were like, we know who the guy is for the next five years, um, but we can't get him at this point. Yeah, but they can't come out and say that publicly. I mean, they can't, yeah, having backed, yeah, yeah. you know, backed Emery. Yeah, exactly. So, so I'm not expecting them to say that, but what I'm saying is um, I find that uh, more excusable than we just can't think of anybody. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of different... You know, there have been rumours floating around this week about it being about not wanting to pay Emery off. I just can't square that, really, when I think what Champions League revenue would cost them in terms of missing out on that. You know, as, yeah. as an equation, as a sum, it's worth the gamble, isn't it, to change staff and try and get into that big pot again? Yeah. I mean, it might cost you, what, £10 million to pay off Emery and his staff? Um because there would be... And then you've got to bring in a load of new staff as well. I mean, it's not an inexpensive operation. No, but it's, but... A, fact of, it's a fact of life. Yeah. It's a fact of footballing Absolutely. life. I mean, I can't believe that... Well, maybe I can believe because the idea that we might be too cheap to sack him, that, that doesn't ring necessarily untrue to me. Like it doesn't. But we all know about cost cutting measures. And yeah, things like exactly. That and you know, I was speaking to somebody um, over the weekend who you know is, has mentioned the word cost cutting to me, um, and that's still ongoing. So it, it's not an impossible motivation, but I think you're right. You know, what being out of the Champions League next season would cost? It just doesn't make any sense to to try and save a few million now. But you might end up losing potentially 40, 50 million, 60 million pounds worth of revenue next season. So it doesn't make sense on that level. And you've got to pay for a a new goal scorer because you lose a Birmingham. Do you know what I mean? Like there are all these other associated costs uh, to sporting failure that that need to be factored in. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, you also continue to lose the prestige and the the stature yeah. that you once had as as one of Europe's big clubs because this would then be four years treading water in the Europa League. Commercial revenue would dwindle because you're not going to do partnerships with blue chip companies because you're playing on Thursday night against FC fucking Carl, you know? Um, you know, all of those things are, are have got to be in the thinking. Um, so, yeah, to me, it doesn't make any sense on that level. A few people asked, like, do you think that the the public backing of him is the kind of classic vote of confidence in a manager yeah. before before he gets sacked, you know? 
no, I think when that's the case, I think you can see it, you can smell it, and uh, it usually comes as as an actual statement from the club as well, yeah. doesn't it? Rather than rather than a, a sort of a briefing, yeah, a briefing the way this has come out. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I don't think this is that. I have to say, from everything I know about the situation, I, I don't. I'm not anticipating any change during this international break. Certainly not at this point. And um, yeah, I, I don't think it's one of those. I, I do just think that the, the we come back to it, but just the statement is tonally off for lots of reasons. And I think even setting aside the whole fans issue, the whole noise idea. I think the kind of head in the sand, sort of um, unflinching support of Emery is a bit problematic. I think it's possible to say we support the manager, but we accept that results and performances have not been good. Do you know what I mean? And and sort of at least show an acknowledgement of the broader situation. And I think their failure to do that is is staggering, really. Yeah. I mean, some people have made the case, and I know we had questions about this. Maybe I, I know that this is a long part one, but uh, see if I can dig one out about if they possibly are holding out hope on the Europa League. Um, the oh. Gooniverses, do you think there's a chance that while Arsenal remain in the Europa League, a competition Emery has performed well in, even last year beating big teams before the disastrous final, that they'll keep him in the job as it's their best chance at the Champions League? Um... I mean, it's sort it, of the big, it, it, you know, it, it's kind of... Um... Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. At this point, if they're not going to make a change... We all need to get behind the Europa League in a big way. Well, basically what they're doing is putting all our Europe, all our seed, all our eggs in the Europa League basket for this season in terms of Champions League qualification because we are not going to qualify for the Champions League with Unai Emery in charge for the rest of this Premier League season. That is just not going to happen. I agree. So I agree. If they stick with him, what the club is essentially saying is enjoy your Europa League season. We're going to risk everything on mm. a knockout competition. And mm. I can't I mean I don't need to tell you how stupid that is. That's really 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 stupid. Yes. Well, the problem with the cup competition is if you can it's over if you lose any one game. And at the moment, Unai Emery looks like a manager who could lose any one game. So, yeah. it, you know, it's it's kind of crazy, but they gambled with their expenditure in the summer. And I wonder if they're, they're going to put everything on, you yeah, know, but, black Europa and yeah. pray. But I mean, look, if you're willing to take the risk of, you know, bringing in Pepe and spending in the summer, and I know we, you know, we look at the £72 million that we, we spent on him we kind of forget that we did bring in a reasonable amount of money as well. So yeah, it wasn't yeah. quite as, um, we didn't go as all in as maybe some people like to think. Nevertheless, we did put ourselves out there. I just don't understand why, if you're willing to take that kind of a risk in the summer, mm. you're paralyzed 12 games into a new season where nobody can look at what Arsenal are doing right now and and make a good case for it being what not what was promised but what was expected from this season you know yeah um we were supposed yeah, to I- be better defensively we're not midfield was supposed to be better it's not 
Our attacking play was supposed to be exciting and full of flourishes and goals and dribbles and Pepe Aubameyang Lacazette. It's not. We don't mm-hmm. score. Mm-hmm. We don't defend. You know, there's no case to be made um, that there are signs. I mean, that was the thing that drove me mad. You know, that they're sort of saying, well, the few minutes when we were not bad against Leicester is somehow a sign that that improvement is possible. It's absolutely ridiculous. There are no signs this season that the football is going to get better. And you know what the worst thing is? They're, they're, they're creating an apathy which it took Arsene Wenger 22 years to do. And yeah. fans, you know, it's anecdotal, but, you know, you talk to fans all the time uh, and you have Arsenal fans who are friends and I've got friends who are Arsenal fans and I talk to people online all the time and the amount of people who are saying, you know, this I'm just fucking bored. I can't be arsed. This is mm-hmm, bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like, what is there to get behind? What is there to believe in? What is there to enjoy? You know, and then the club come out and they spin us this, I hate to use the phrase, but it's kind of like fake news. That's kind of mm-hmm. what it is. Like we mm-hmm. can all see one thing and they're trying to tell us that it's another thing. And that's really hard to take. That's really yeah. that's really tough. And, you know, it creates a resentment and it creates a, you know, some people will feedback and they'll feedback angrily, but other people will just say, fuck it. Fuck this and switch off and not go to games and not buy tickets and not do all the things that football fans should do because they've got a team that they, even if it's not the most successful team in the world, they can get behind because at least at least it's trying to be what they say it's supposed to be and not fucking lying to us about what it is because we can all see what it is and it's not what they say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. But I think that... Uh, they must know we're not that stupid. I hope they know we're not that stupid as well. Do you know what I mean? That mm. this statement, they, there's no... It's not a statement, forgive me, it's a briefing, but there's no way they can possibly believe that people are just going to swallow that. I mean, I think what you said is interesting about they've created an apathy that it took Arsene Wenger 20, 20 years to create. I, I think it's more that that apathy is kind of latent and there and we get energised and excited about new things and when they don't pan out, we return to that state. And I think that is something about modern football and when you're owned by people who don't really give a shit, you you are drawn into that apathetic state, aren't you? It's like, if you know, forget we care to you. It's like, if you don't care, why should we? Uh, And I completely understand that. I completely understand that. You don't care, um, should we? That's yeah, yeah. That's and the look, new hashtag. <laughs> I know, I know. And you know what else as well? You know this idea that you know le- they hold up Leicester right as this mm. really strong team against whom plucky little Arsenal, plucky little underdogs, just promoted from the Vauxhall Conference Arsenal. You know we held our own for sixty-eight minutes, and they mm. they hold up Leicester as this this example of something we can't compete with at this moment in time. But mm. Leicester, only jo- I was staggered when I was talking to Joe on the Arscast on, on Friday, Joe Bruin, the, the Leicester fan, and he sort of said, yeah, well, you know, when Rodgers came in in February, and I was like, last yeah. February, and he was like, no, 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 it was, it was only this February. Yeah. So in, in half the time 
that Emery has had at Arsenal, he's had a monumental impact on that club, the football it plays, the results, the, 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 the atmosphere around the club. They've got something to believe in. Um, and, Absolutely. And, and where does that stem from? An owner who had real ambition for that club, well, like, hang in on. my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. But look, let, let's talk about the circumstances and this idea that, that it's been difficult for Unai Emery. It's been difficult for him because some guy attacked Kolasinac and Ozil with a knitting needle. That's, been, you know, <laughs> yeah. or, or Koscielny, who I think we have to look into that situation now. Like, why did Koscielny so badly want to get away? and absolutely piss all over his Arsenal legacy. I think we have to look at Koscielny's departure within the context of what's going on at Arsenal right now. But like, as if that or the Granit Xhaka thing is, is so difficult for us to deal with. Leicester lost their owner in a fucking helicopter crash. Mm. And those are genuinely tragic circumstances which a football club would have difficulty in dealing with. Not this fucking bullshit that they're putting out there. So everything they say about how good Leicester are is kind of damning themselves at the same time because what made Leicester good again? Changing their manager. A manager who the players didn't get along with. A manager whose football the fans didn't really appreciate. And they brought in a new manager who had to work with all the same players and look at what he has done. He is the perfect example of why Arsenal should change Unai Emery as soon as possible. As soon as possible. I mean, they sold fucking Harry McGuire. They sold their so-called best central defender in the summer and didn't replace him. I know. And look at what they're doing. So everything they say about Leicester being great just makes them look like fucking idiots. Mm -hmm. I was really struck, actually, by something... I mean, I completely agree, by the way. I think that's really, really... Fucking well put, to be honest. I mean, they are a good example and they are going to be rewarded. I mean, they'll be... I'll be surprised if they don't make the top four the way they're going. Uh, I know Rodgers has got a bit of a reputation for choking in the Premier League late on, but they are impressive. And I was struck by something. When Rodgers came into the club, he he had two talks... He, he, he made two big speeches. One, I mean, we know he's a bit of an egomaniac and a bit of a twat, to be honest, but yeah. one to all the um, coaching and playing staff and then one to all the non-football staff about the, the, the club's direction and the idea of pulling the club together and, you know, what their ethos was going to be and the way they were going to do things. And I know that Arsenal don't want to operate in that kind of manager model anymore. They just want someone who's a coach, but somebody desperately needs to take that role at Arsenal yeah. and be someone who unites and communicates and communicates through this difficult period. Someone's got to be brave enough to put their head above the parapet and not hide behind, you know, a sort of straw man of a manager. Uh, and, I, I, you know, it should be... It, ideally, it would be Edu, but I think six months in or whatever it is, I think it's understandable if it's not. So it has to be Raul Senyayi. He's the head of football at this club and the buck stops with him. Um, mm. And yeah, I, I, Rogers is a great example of what the right coach can do. Mm. Uh, and Arsenal can't resist making a change. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com because they're scared of getting the next guy wrong. Mm. Look, um, we're an hour and a bit in, so I think we should take a break. There's going to be more questions and more stuff about this weekend and the, the situation in general, but we'll let people go and make a cup of tea or do whatever it is they want to do in the middle of this podcast. We'll come back with your questions in part two right after this. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two, where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter, at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog, on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog, and also on the Arsblog Discord server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon, which you can join for just five euros a month. Help support everything that we do here on the site, get extra content, bonus um, stuff, and also, you know, ad-free podcasts, ad-free apps, all that kind of stuff, patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. Um, I'm going to start with one from there, and I also have it um, from one of our Twitter uh, followers as well, but from the Discord from Chief Eno, He says, mm-hmm. as a season ticket holder, what should my form of protest be? Um, obviously, in relation to what's going on at this moment in time, should mm-hmm. I not turn up? Should we be chanting to sack him? Should we organize a walkout, arrive late, or something else? And we had a similar question from... Arsenal Lion, who's on Twitter, at LionSex, which is a fairly niche um, hobby, I believe. Sure. Uh, dangerous, too, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> he says, what, what do you think is the best way for fans to make their voices heard? The latest briefing from the club suggests they're dismissive of the fans' viewpoint, but they must. there must be something uh, we can do to get that viewpoint heard. Empty seats, protests, social media, what is it? Well, I tell you what, I mean, it's not been talked about hugely, but observation in the Emirates Stadium suggests to me that the, the empty seats thing is already kind of happening. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know if the cameras are picking it up as much, but most home games I'm noticing, you know, healthy chunks of, of the ground being vacated. And I think that that does, to a certain extent, speak volumes and probably was a contributing factor in the decision to let Arsene Wenger move on because attendances were really down at that time. Um, It's a really tricky one, though. As a season ticket holder, what is the best form of letting your opinion be known? Because Arsenal fans, you know, being the, the genteel lot that we are, I think the idea of actively protesting against the manager during the 90 minutes feels... uh icky doesn't it feels feels wrong yeah look you know i think when there's booing and what have you in a stadium it can often be reactionary so you know obviously everyone goes to the game 
to support the team and to get behind them and to to do their bit as a fan. But yeah. let's say you're playing Leicester at home and you go 3-0 down after an hour. You know, I'm not sure that cheering, come on, lads, you could do it. Come on, keep a stiff upper lip there, fellows. I'm not sure that's the... I'm not sure that's the the right response. It's certainly not the human response. The human response would be to to sort of boo and to sort of express your displeasure in that way. And I don't think in those circumstances that there's anything wrong with it. But to actually set out to go there and, and to protest against the manager or the players or whatever is difficult, isn't it? Because you don't want to blur those lines because you do want to support the team and maybe it will have a negative of, uh, uh, impact on the team or what have you. You know, I, I saw, say by the way, so just quickly, I, I was at Leicester on Saturday, and I, you know, on social media and things like that, was seeing a lot of Arsenal fans saying, "Well, you know, it wouldn't be the worst thing if we didn't win this game if it expediated Emery's departure." But from the first minute, from before kickoff, the Arsenal away fans, the support from them was unbelievable. Uh, like, mm. you know, and Leicester is a ground. They have a really good atmosphere. They give all the fans these, like, rattle things that make... Yeah, the clackers. Things. They make a hell of a lot of noise. But the Arsenal fans were audible, and I was sat right on the opposite side of the ground all the way through, um, you know, singing individual player songs, singing for the team, right up until, I think, maybe Leicester's second goal. And then there was a bit of dissent from that corner. But yeah. I just have to take my hat off to those guys who travelled and who absolutely backed the team and, and were brilliant. And I think that flies in the face, I think, of a bit of the idea of what, you know, that mm. idea of what Arsenal fans are like. Do you think there's something within the English football culture that doesn't look at protest um, or that looks at protest in a kind of, like it's something that should be beneath us well, in a way? Yeah, like I, we're not, we're not... We're not designed for it or it's it's out of the ordinary and therefore it's sort of seen as, well, you know, you shouldn't really be doing that in the stadium. I mean, I saw a lot of people talk over the weekend um, and it might be something that resonates with uh, a Spanish coach and a Spanish head of football, the white hankies. Yeah. You know, yeah. the white hankies come out at, at um, football grounds in Spain when fans who don't necessarily want to... Um, be seen protesting the players or whatever it might be, but the performances or if they've got a grievance with the manager or if they've got a grievance with, you know, the way the club is being run, the white hankies come out. It's like the Roman emperor thing, you know, thumbs up, you know, this is it. We're giving you our, we're giving you our opinion on what's going on, but it's not a, it's not really a, a destructive thing, if you yeah. like, you know, it's, it's not booing, it's not jeering, but the message is clear. I mean, it'd be amazing if, you know... It's not aggressive. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly... I, I think that's a really interesting idea. I was struck by something you said in part one where you were talking about fans and you said, well, fans aren't there to be cheerleaders. And I, I actually think in British sport, I think they largely are. And it seems to me pertinent that in American sport, where booing is more part of, of the fan culture, they have cheerleaders. Yeah, they you have know, they, actual cheerleaders. They have actual cheerleaders to do that. That's not really in our culture. I think that it, the expectation is more that the fans kind of will be very partisan and very supportive, you know. Um, I just thought, yeah, it's funny, isn't yeah. it? They, they literally have them uh, for that job. We don't, apart from at Crystal Palace, bizarrely. They must have <laughs> really ruptious fans. But uh, I think... Uh, 
Yeah, the white hankies is a great example of something that that is dissent without being destructive necessarily. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah, because it's not something that exists in our culture. I mean, I think when you get it, it tends to be against owners and it tends to be the walkout. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's more acceptable to walk out than it is to chant against the club or the mm. team. Um but that, I, it all, I always struggle with the walkout. I always struggle with the idea of, well, I've given you my money and you've got that now and I'm just going to leave and you, you're still going to have that money. Do you know what I mean? It feels yeah, yeah, yeah. like in a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of economics orientated business, it's sort of like, well, I don't know what, what good that does really. Um, so what are you saying? Red and white hankies at the next game? Or? Yeah, who knows? I mean, look, I, I, I'm not... <laughs> I can't tell anyone to do anything, but it would be an amazing thing, wouldn't it? Um, mm. And look, I, it's one of those weird things that I feel there's a kind of consensus around. You know, the, the people people aren't losing their shit because they don't care. People are losing their shit because they care, because they want the team to do well, because they can see it's not going right, you know? And, and this mm. idea that somehow... A, acknowledging or, or B, making it clear that you're you're unhappy with with what's being produced is uh, is not the action of a true supporter or whatever it might be i don't i don't really see how that's possible you know like if you mm. didn't care you just wouldn't do anything you just stop going or you stop talking about it or you stop writing or podcasting or listening or whatever it is like that's what you do if you don't care anymore but if you do care and if you want your club to to address issues, if you want your club to be successful, if you want um, the team to to achieve its goals and to win trophies and be competitive, there's nothing wrong with expressing an opinion that when things are poor, they are poor. No, no. I mean, I have to say, genuinely, this maybe it's just the novelty of it, but the the white hankies thing does have a certain appeal. Uh, it feels, I don't know. I don't know. Over, uh, over we'll to see. you, red action. Red action. Exactly. <laughs> you had 60,000 hankies on the seats. Um, this question is from Glenn Miller on Twitter. And okay. Glenn says, can you recall any examples of when a manager, not just at Arsenal, has been able to turn the tide of opinion from the position that Emery is currently in? Um... It's hard, isn't it? I really, really am struggling there. The um, the only thing that I can kind of think of is is maybe after the eight two at Old Trafford, but even then, it wasn't quite that. You know, it was. Well, he had such a bank of goodwill. Do you know what I mean? To, yeah. To, to so, draw from, um, I, I can't really. I mean, there are managers who survived. I was looking, because this is our worst start to a season since 82-83. Yeah. Um, in case you're wondering, we finished 10th that year. Um, Terry Neal was the manager. And I think he survived another 12 months uh, in the job. But I'm not sure it got markedly better. It's before my time, though, I have to say. No, look, I, you know, I was young then and slightly detached from it, but, you know... Yeah. Um, it's, it's not a period people reflect on fondly. Let's put it like that. No, like you know, the the mid '80s for Arsenal were were barren 
times. They really weren't good times. But no, to answer the question, I cannot think of a situation where where a manager has been able to turn it around. Because even if even if we won our next five games, the next time we lose a game, it'll be just opening up that wound again, you know? Yeah, that's it. And I think, you know, there are managers who started slower or slowly. You know, Jurgen Klopp is often an example that's cited, but as we've said many times, there were things about his style that were clearly identifiable, and I think a lot of people were able to, to get on board with that. I mean, did you watch... Um, Liverpool City yesterday. I didn't watch it, but I watched uh, the match of the day too. Um, right. It was so- just quite a strange, you know, as an Arsenal fan, I mean, I'm sure other Arsenal fans must have identified with it, but, you know, watching that be the fixture and those be the teams and seeing quite how big the gulf yeah. in intensity and quality is yeah, but also, quite a lot home. Yeah, exactly. And also the ambition of the football because I watched the the second Liverpool goal, the Salah header. Yeah. And I watched Liverpool with the ball um, over on their right-hand side. And I mm. can't remember who played the cross-field pass. I think it could have been a first-time cross-field pass. And I looked at it and I... It, it, it's sort of it's, shocked me. It's Alexander me. Arnold right. with his left foot. Yeah. Pings it about 60 yards. Yeah. Yeah. It shocked me because I'm so used to Arsenal when we've got the ball in that position to just go back to the centre half, mm. go across to the next centre half, and then it might go back, you know. But the, the, the speed of thought, the execution, the ambition to play forward. And it was a great pass, and then obviously a brilliant ball in from Robertson to Salah to score the header. It was a fucking beautiful goal, a really beautiful goal. But it came because there was a, a measure of um, ambition in the football. Like, he was prepared to take a risk to make that happen. Whereas you look at Arsenal players and you look sometimes like, are they just making a pass because... At the end of the day, when Stat DNA posts up the, you know, the pass completion on the training ground wall, do they want to be the guy who misplaced, you know, X amount of passes? Or do you want to be an 80, 85% guy? But I'd rather a fucking 75% guy who, like, at least tries to make things happen. It's like the difference in the football is is unbelievable. Yeah. Depressingly. I saw some interesting stats uh, last week about how frequently Arsenal counterattack, and I think they are second to Liverpool in terms of, you know, counterattacks or transition attacks in the Premier League, and I think they're also second for like direct attacks. Um, so when I try and figure out what Emery wants to do, I sort of assume it's to emulate something like that. But we're so far away in terms of you know, the the ambition yeah. of the way we use the ball. I mean, what what did you make of, I haven't got a question specifically about this, but what did you make of the way we passed out from the back at Leicester? Because that was, in an improved performance, that was one of the areas that was still driving me pretty mad, to be honest with you. I don't know that I noticed um, anything too different from what I've seen for, for most of the season. Yeah. I do remember making a note of it in the live blog at one stage where we passed the ball at the back and it was always just maybe a half a yard in front of the player trying to pass the ball. You know, we never properly had control of the football. And Mm. I think maybe 
Bellerin played a poor pass in field and they had a chance or had a shot or whatever it was. And, you know, some of that is down to Bellerin being a bit bit rusty. But, yeah, look, how often we are we practising this? Well, not often enough, genuinely. I mean, Or maybe too much. <laughs> you know, look, I don't know. Yeah. Like, how can there not be any improvement in this? In basics? For me, there were big concerns. Holding and Chambers, it seemed to me, who, you know, were picked. I had a question from the Discord um, about Socrates being dropped. Where was it? Let me have a little look. Uh, Any surprise at Socrates not starting from useless idiot 5,000. And I think Holding and Chambers were picked because they are supposedly decent on the ball. But when you look at their passing in the game... So frequently was it forward, you know, so frequently was it into a player in space in the midfield. It was a lot of sideways stuff. And it does feel a bit like we've decided to play out the back and our only real plan is that we hope David Luiz does something good. And, you yeah, know, look, that- we're, we're, we're not set up in a way which um, allows players to pass the ball forward a lot, mm. really. There's a reason why our pass maps are just a series of fucking horseshoes. Mm. It's because the team, A, doesn't feel confident enough to do it, but B, the setup is not right. So we've got players who aren't there to receive the ball. So your central defenders, you know, um, holding in chambers, should be pushing up with the ball to try and make forward passes. But there's nobody there. Or if it is, it's just playing it out wide to the wing back. Um yeah, and, and Louise is going long. I mean, I saw Louise is the fourth highest player in the Premier League for through balls. He's behind <laughs> what? like James Madsen, Jorginho, and uh, uh, someone else. Maybe it's Wendier at Norwich. Someone like that. He's You're, genuinely fourth. Is that for real? Through balls. Yeah, yeah, for for for, for real. Uh, and it's me. partly because you know when when we when we can't pass it and build the play through the midfield, he'll look long. And, you know, he's good at that. I mean, he's got a good pass on him, but the fact that we're having to resort to that shows you how how poorly our midfield is functioning and how few sort of exit routes from the back we have. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, crazy. Um, he's the new playma- playmaker. That's why Urza was dropped. We had David Luiz. Yeah, I'm looking at it here. Wow. It's, kind of mad. it's on the Premier think, League. Yeah, Jorginho, oh, so Tielemans. Jorginho, Tielemans and Madsen are above him. That's it. Eight through balls, yeah. Also, Crazy, eh? well, I mean, we've got Pepe and Ganduzi, uh, you know, joined seventh with the same oh, really? as De Bruyne and Sterling. I tell you a stat that blew my mind. If you scroll through that Premier League website, and I tweeted it last night, the most saves made by any goalkeeper in the Premier League is Burned Leno with 49. That blew your mind, did it? Had <laughs> you forgotten like you'd watched Arsenal for the whole season or something? I, I think just to see it on that scale. Yeah, yeah, and also yeah. to see that he's not he's not in the top, you know, five or whatever it is for goals conceded. I mean, I think we've talked about Aubameyang and the degree to which his performances have bailed Arsenal out this season. I really think Bernd Leno has been excellent under under mm. immense pressure. Immense pressure. I uh, feel sorry for him. Yeah, he must I have do. nightmares. I mean, honestly, and and, and I think um, a lesser goalkeeper under that kind of strain would be going to pieces. You know, if I think about some of the goalkeepers we've had in the past, 
they'd be committing major, major errors. And mm. I don't remember that from Bernd Leno this season. And I think that's remarkable, to be honest. I really do. Yeah. Um, He's too, but absurd, yeah. absurd that he should be in that position. Right. Here's a question from Lomo's adjutant, who's at K underscore Sesson on Twitter. And they say, I was quite taken aback by the physical appearance and conditioning of Bellerin. Has he been rushed back way too soon? Um, <clears throat> it was a strange game from Bellerin, I thought, because he added a lot to the team in terms of his style of play and being a, a, the sort of player that we've missed. But, I did think, you know, there was an obvious slight lack of sharpness about him and a few rusty moments. Uh, I wasn't necessarily sure that he looked unfit. I do think he has lost a a little bit of pace uh, over the past few years with several injury problems. But that's not a huge surprise, is it, given what he's been through? Uh, I, I don't think he's been rushed back. I think he's been introduced pretty gradually. I suppose it's just... It's a big game in which to play your first Premier League game, isn't it? It's a it's a it's a tough one to come into. Yeah, I think so. I I, I certainly wasn't shocked by his appearance or conditioning. I think what we saw was a player um, making his way back from a, a very serious injury. I thought he was rusty. Certainly, some of the passes. A couple of times he played passes infield, which mm. um, which weren't great. But I think you can put that down to a lack of match practice. Um, I thought he did offer us something going forward. He had that shot. There was that run that he made into the box, which if Lacazette could have found him would have been a really brilliant goal uh, yeah. because, you know, I would have backed Bellerin to, to make the finish. Um, but I do think it's going to take a bit of time. Just going to take some time for him to get back up to speed fully. It's a, it's a crucial injury. He hasn't played much for nine, ten months. Um he won't be alone in being a player who who takes a few months to really get up to speed again. So I'm not shocked or I'm not even that worried. I, I agree with you. I think he has lost a little bit of pace, but I think that might come with with sharper um, decision-making mm. on the pitch. I think we'll see you know that not be a, as much of an issue and obviously i think his fitness will improve as well over the over the coming weeks and months so i'm i'm not worried i thought there was some encouraging signs from him yeah i agree um and i think you know with sharpness he will improve i mean i th- i think he still needs to be managed you know he's got the international break now and i'm sure he will do some important work in there but i don't think just because he's played that game, we can expect him to play, you know, every game from now on. I think they've, they've still got to take it easy with him in this sensitive period. Mm. Um, bah, bah, bah. I've got so many depressing questions. This one, I think, <coughs> from Liam Stokes, I think is interesting, albeit on the managerial situation. Liam says, are the psychological scars left by Man United's post-Ferguson woes frightening the board into inaction? That's a good question, and I had a very similar one here. If I can just find it from, bah, 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 bah. sorry about this. I know I have it here. Um, I've got. Oh yeah, the Gunner Talk uh, at the Gunner Talk TV, who says supposedly the hierarchy want to avoid the series of events which occurred at United after Sir Alex Ferguson's retirement. Why did the board see it as black and white as this? Plenty of clubs, not just in England but on the continent, change their manager regularly and successfully. Um, I, I think the 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 idea that we're not making a change because we don't want to go down the same road as Manchester United is another excuse. Mm. 
I think it's just an excuse. I think it's something that they're saying. It's like, ooh, look, be careful. This could happen if we do it. Sure. But also, as we said earlier, it could get better by doing it. So yeah. I think it is uh, basically a load of bollocks. Um, just because something happened at one club doesn't mean it will happen to us. Um no. And what's the inference there, that Manchester United should have stuck with David Moyes? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Does that mean, oh, if something's not working, you just persist with it so that you don't do a Manchester United? I, I, I don't buy that at all. I think Manchester United's problem isn't sacking managers. It's not appointing the right one. Yeah. And, you know, Arsenal need to bite the bullet. And this is something about Emery, which is that, you know... I think there are recriminations and it's it's easy now with hindsight, you know, uh, to look back and say, well, look, there were things about him in, in his managerial past that's, that have kind of foreshadowed some of the problems he's had at Arsenal. I wrote a big piece myself sort of along those lines. But, you know, it hasn't worked out. There is no great shame in that. You know, it was always going to be difficult to yeah. get it right straight away. I don't think the club need to be so scared to admit that they got it wrong or that it hasn't worked out. Mm, I you love know, the that, way you said scared there. That yeah, well, it's because I... It's because it's an emotive word, as Granite Xhaka found out to his... Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, to his... I can't remember what the next word in that phrase cost. would be. But cost, that's the one. Um, earlier this season. But, y- you know, sometimes you just have to hold your hands up and all parties can say... As we said, I think we said this last week, you know, it just hasn't panned out. It's kind of, it doesn't even have to be anybody's fault. I mean, of course, it's Ivan Gazidis' fault. But of course it doesn't it have is. to be anybody's fault. <laughs> uh, we can all just sort of shake hands and move on. I do think that there is a fear. There is a fear of initiating a sort of cycle of new managers, but that fear is sort of born out of uh, basically a fear of making the wrong decision. Yeah, you can't but also, like yeah, that. maybe. And also this. You know, we had a manager in place for 22 years. Mm. But that was, that was, I'm going to say special because it doesn't happen very often. And leaving aside however you feel about, you know, when Wenger left and should he have gone sooner or any of that. Yeah. In the history of Arsenal, Arsene Wenger is special because of what he did and the impact he had, the success that he had, and, you know, the way that he he imprinted himself on the club. Mm. Don't Mm. try and replicate that because you can't do it. Don't be afraid to make changes when things don't work because you can make a mistake, but doubling down on the mistake is only going to exacerbate the problem. And that's that's where we are with uh, with Emery. They, I think you're right. They could be scared, and also somehow it's seen as unseemly to sack a manager. Like people went on and on. You know, um, I'm not saying Chelsea is the the right example or anything like it, mm. but Chelsea is a an illustration of how changing your manager is not an impediment to success because they've changed their manager countless times in the last X amount of years and they have won far more than we have. And I know there are other reasons for it. I know there are financial reasons and all of those kind of things. But 
I think we have to get our heads around the idea that it doesn't demonstrate a lack of class or it's not shameful for Arsenal to fire a manager. Mm-hmm. That's what they should be doing when a manager is not performing. Mm-hmm. And the shame is actually letting it continue because it damages the club, it damages the team, it damages the fans. Ultimately, it damages the man who is the manager or the head coach because his reputation becomes more and more colored by what happens. The shame is not doing it. So, I, I, Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I was just looking at another example, which is Leicester. And granted, um, they've had a couple of caretakers in that time, but between uh, summer 2015 and now, I think they've had as many as eight different people in the dugout. And let's not forget, they've won a Premier League in that time. So, uh, you know, it's not always a disaster to change and you have to be ruthless and you have to have ambition. I mean, I I think this is one of the things the club think, and I have a certain degree of sympathy with it, which is they fear... I think they fear that even if they bring in a new bloke, if he loses a couple of games, like, I don't know, a few months in, we'll just be back here again. And I have a certain degree of sympathy with that. I think there is a a latent dissatisfaction around Arsenal at the moment that resurfaces very fast, very quickly. Do you think... Let me just cut across you. Do you you think that's... What do you put that down to? Because the one thing that strikes me, and that's the owners... Yes, An inherent think, distrust of the owners feeds into that. Yes, I think that is a really big factor. I do think it's broader than Arsenal as well. I think it's sort of, I think it's kind of modern football, if you'll forgive the generalisation, but I think there is a lot of that to it. And I think there's almost, I get the slight impression that there might almost be a sense of, uh, what's the word? This is a very patronising idea, but that the club sort of wish to kind of educate the fan base or sort of cultivate the fan base to be like, look, sometimes it'll be bad and every time it's bad, you can't fly a plane. I sort of feel a bit of that energy from them. Um, And it's not something I 100% disagree with. I think that, you know, there is a, a degree to which a positive environment is helpful, but I'm not sure. I think it was a positive environment a year ago. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I, I think that I think that Arsenal fans did rally, and I think Arsenal fans did overlook problems and did sort of set aside XG and underlying metrics and all those things because they wanted to believe because that's what fans do. They try to rally behind positive signs. Um, so I think the club are right. You can't always be like that, but I think. I think Arsenal fans have tried. I do think that. I think they've tried to get on board with this. And that's an important distinction. Mm. Look, we've said it before. If if there were things that, that were positive, like genuinely, if there were some things that were positive about what was going on at this moment in time, I don't think there would be the crescendo of of opinion. But I mean, yeah, let's... Do, I mean, genuinely, this is a shout-out because we've got an international break now. If there are Arsenal list fans who are listeners who can really mount a positive case for Unai Emery. And I, I say this without any judgment. Like, I would love to hear it because I, I don't know those fans 
Honestly, I don't. And maybe it's my um, echo chamber that I'm in on social media, but I'm just not seeing that mounted by anybody, really. No, no. Um, so, yeah, if you are out there, give us a shout, because it would give us something <laughs> different to talk about for a start. Yeah, it certainly would. Um, oh God, we've done such a lot on the manager and, and all yeah, that of kind course. of stuff. So let's let's begin to wrap it up here. And uh, let me see if I can find this one. This isn't so much a question as a story that came out over the weekend. Um, it's James, uh, at James underscore KMP. Mm. Um, and he just wanted to point out that Andre Arshavin... This is amazing. This This is brilliant. Andre Arshavin has got a son called Arseni. Arseni Arshavin, who is named after Arsene Wenger. There's a picture of him, and he looks just like Andre Arshavin. And he was the best player of the week uh, for Barcelona's academy in La Masia. Um, And it's it's hilarious. It's brilliant. It is... it is a lovely story, uh, especially given that Barcelona was kind of the move that I think Arshavin probably always wanted and he sort of didn't quite get in his career. Yeah. And uh, I also heard that Arseni, who I think is about nine, um, is taller than his dad. No, which I really that can't be right. <laughs> that can't be right. I I'm choosing to believe it is. <laughs> I mean, depressingly, I did discover, because I looked into it, that Arseni is a Russian given name. It exists in Russia as a name. Right. So, but, you know, let's let's not let that ruin this, because it, it is a glorious tale. It's brilliant. It really I'd love Arseni uh, Arshavin to play for Arsenal one day. Maybe we can steal him from Barcelona's academy, Alab. Alasesque or something. No, give, give it, give it another thirty-five years. He can take over as he can take over as manager. <laughs> That's what we want. Can you imagine? Oh I my mean, god! I mean, naming your child after your manager. Just yeah, trying to think. I, just trying to think. If I, if any, like imagine if David Beckham calling their children Unai. Yeah, I doubt it. <laughs> or if David Beckham had called one of his sons like Ferdinand or yeah. something. I don't know. Sralix. Sralix. It's Sralix Beckham. Isn't he a DJ? And he do all that <laughs> stuff. Sralix. Sralix, yeah, I think Sralix. it is him, definitely. Um, <laughs> yes, wow. I uh, I was just thinking about the fact that David Beckham tends to name his children after where he consummated them and how that might, what that might mean. Couch, but anyway, let's not get into Beckham. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, uh, but yeah, your, I did enjoy what's that. What's your name? On top of the answer. washing machine, Beckham? What? <laughs> what's that? Strange business. Strange business. Look, do you think we should leave it there? Because we've been I going think so. a while. It's a good, yeah, it's a, it's a lengthy podcast. Congratulations if you made it this far. Yeah, thank you very much indeed for listening. Of course, we are going to be in an interlull. Um, mm. But hey, we'll keep the podcast stuff going for you. There'll be a regular Arsecast on Friday. And I think this week there might be something a bit extra on the Patreon as well. So if you want to get on board, patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. We'll probably do a live stream, YouTube live stream type thing, which you can join in and ask questions in and all that kind of stuff. So that'll be uh, a bit later in the week. I'll give you some details on the Patreon site if you're already a member. And if you're not, patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. Um that's it. I can't do that any more. It. Can't do that any more. It. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye bye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.